Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit. On behalf of all of us at Cardio Nerds, we are thrilled to bring to you our Decipher the Guideline series for the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite sized, high impact clinical vignette based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and created for educational purposes only. This series was developed by the Cardio Nerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college student through advanced fellows with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bazanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance along the way. So friends, join us as we get to learn about the heart failure guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. And now, let's get nerdy. The following question refers to section 4.3 of the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA guidelines for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Texas Tech University medical student and Cardioneric Academy intern, Dr. Adriana Meyer. Answered first by Rochester General Hospital Cardiology Fellow and Director of Cardioners Journal Club, Dr. Devesh Rai, and then expert faculty, Dr. Eldrin Lewis. Dr. Lewis is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist, professor of medicine, and chief of division of cardiovascular medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Lewis, welcome back to Cardioners. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. We are glad to have you. Adriana, do you have a question for us? Our question is, a 45-year-old man presents to cardiology clinic to establish care. He has had several months of progressive dyspnea on exertion while playing basketball. He also reports intermittent palpitations for the last two months. Two weeks ago, he passed out while playing and attributed this to exertion and dehydration. He denies smoking and alcohol intake. Family history is significant for sudden cardiac death in his father at the age of 50 years. Autopsy has shown a thick heart, but he is unaware of the exact diagnosis. He has two children, ages 12 and 15 years old, who are healthy. Vital signs are blood pressure of 124 over 84 millimeters of mercury, heart rate of 70 beats per minute, and normal respiration rate. On asking patient, a systolic murmur is present at the left lower external border. A 12-lead ECG showed normal sinus rhythm with signs of LVH and associated refluorization abnormalities. Echocardiography reveals normal LV chamber volume and preserved LVEF. Asymmetric septal hypertrophy with wall thickness up to 16 millimeters. Systolic anterior motion of the anterior mitral valve leaflet with two plus eccentric posteriorly directed MR and rusted LBOT gradient of 30 millimeters of mercury with increases to 60 millimeters of mercury on Volsalva. You discuss your concern for an inherited cardiomyopathy, namely hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In addition to medical management of his symptoms and referral to electrophysiology or ICD evaluation, 
Which of the following is appropriate at this time? A. Order blood work for genetic testing. B. Referral for genetic counseling. C. Cardiac MRI. D. Coronary angiogram. Or E. All of the above. Debash, based on the patient's profile and concern for inherited cardiomyopathy, what would be your next step? Adriana, thanks a lot for this interesting question. The correct answer for this question will be referral for genetic counseling. So several factors in the clinical evaluation may indicate a possible underlying genetic cardiomyopathy. Clues may be found in cardiac morphology, namely marked left ventricular hypertrophy, left ventricle non-compaction, right ventricular thinning, or fatty replacement on imaging or biopsy. The second test is lead electrocardiography. Abnormally high or low voltage in conduction and depolarizations or altered adventricular forces can be also seen. The third thing which we can see is presence of arrhythmias. Frequent non-sustained ventricular tachycardia or very frequent PVCs or patients with sustained ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, early onset atrial fibrillation and early onset conduction disease can also point towards possibly underlying genetic cardiomyopathy. Last but not the least are extracardiac features in these patients, namely skeletal myopathy, neuropathy, cutaneous stigmata, and other possible manifestations of specific syndromes. In selected patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, referral for genetic counseling and testing is reasonable to identify conditions that could guide treatment for patients and family members. In first-degree relatives of selected patients with genetic or inherited cardiomyopathies, Genetic screening and counseling are recommended to detect cardiac diseases and prompt consideration of treatment to decrease heart failure progression and sudden cardiac death. This is a class 1 recommendation as per the guidelines. No controlled studies have shown clinical benefits of genetic testing for cardiomyopathy, but genetic testing contributes to the risk stratification and has implications for treatment. Currently, most often, decisions regarding defibrillators for primary prevention of sudden cardiac death regarding exercise limitations for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and desmosomal variants. Furthermore, consultation with a trained counselor before and after genetic testing helps patients to understand and weigh the implications of positive results for their own lives and those of family members, including possible discriminations on the basis of genetic information. Thus, unless shown to be of free genetic variants implicated in the proband, first-degree relatives of affected probands should undergo periodic screening with echocardiography and electrocardiography. In our patient who likely has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a family history of sudden cardiac death, recent unexpected syncope, and two children, referral for genetic counseling is appropriate at this time. However, option A is incorrect because ordering genetic testing without meeting a trained counselor is not advised. Thus, the main takeaway for this question is, patients with the possibility of genetic cardiomyopathy should be referred to trained genetic counselor before and after genetic testing to understand the implications of testing and results. So Dr. Lewis, please share your thoughts on when to consider genetic testing and implications for family members in patients with possible inherited cardiomyopathies. Absolutely. Thank you very much. That was a great summary. I think uh, when we think of genetic testing, we have to really think of how far we've come. And it's really been because of tremendous research over the decades. So we used to have something that we would commonly call idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy. It represented about 40% of the diagnosis of heart failure, basically the most common after ischemic. So you have ischemic cardiomyopathy, idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy. We now know from significant work in epidemiologic cohorts 
that about 25 to 40 percent of patients who have this dilated cardiomyopathy without a clear etiology is the so-called idiopathic cardiomyopathy actually have a positive family history. So if you don't take the history, you don't know that we could be dealing with a genetic issue. But even for people without a recognized family history, 10 to 30% of them will have some form of inherited cardiomyopathy. There are so many reasons why that is the case. If you have these large families with you know six and seven siblings, then with Mendelian transmission, you will have a significant percentage of people who will have disease. But when we're seeing increasing numbers of families where you may only have an only child or may only have two children. And so you may not have these extensive family trees where you can do these complex, detailed family assessments. I would emphasize that if you want to do genetic testing, you absolutely need genetic counseling. One is the genetic counselors are really good at talking with the patient and they're trained in trying to kind of understand the implications of these results. And, and I'll give an example. If I basically have three children and I now know that I have a gene and I've given that gene to two of my three children, you have a lot of guilt sometimes and you can have some emotional impact of kind of potentially, quote unquote, giving this disease to a family member. So understanding how this information will be shared will be really important. The other is the possibility of people discriminating against you because of the gene. Even though, to the best of my knowledge, it's illegal for this to happen, imagine if you are completely asymptomatic, but you know that you have the lamin AC for dilated cardiomyopathy. These patients could then end up not being able to get life insurance or disability insurance because they carry a gene that could lead to cardiomyopathy. So that kind of discrimination is real. And you need to kind of make sure that people understand the genetic information. The other reason that I would absolutely recommend genetic counseling is you sometimes have a variant of unknown significance. It is a polymorphism that exists, but we don't really know if it's pathologic. And so now all of a sudden I'm asymptomatic. I have a variant that I think is pathologic and I'm going through my life thinking about this. Let's not talk about cardiomyopathy, but talk about something that is, that is concerning for a lot of people as we get older, and that is dementia. Imagine if I knew that I had something called Pick's disease, and I have the gene, and I know at the age of 20 that by the age of 45, I will have early to moderate onset dementia. It could potentially have an impact on, on how that person goes through their lives and lives their lives. So all of this will be really important. The other thing that I would emphasize is that if you're going to refer for genetic testing, you should actually test the proband first, the person who has the most severe disease. So let's say that we have three family members who may have various forms of cardiomyopathy. You want to start with the person who's most symptomatic because you're more likely to find a pathologic variant there, and then you can identify it. So why would I look for genetic cardiomyopathy? Well, I think as I kind of alluded to before, if all of a sudden you have LV, like left ventricular hypertrophy, that's out of proportion to their degree of hypertension, or it doesn't make sense, you may want to look for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. 
if you have kind of thinning of the right ventricle that would make you think of uh, ARVC and, and even looking at something called LV non-compaction, right? So now with the use of cardiac MRIs more frequently, we're making this diagnosis when it was often, we would just say we see heavy trabeculations on echocardiogram, but with MRI, we have clear criteria for LV non-compaction. This has significant implications, and I would actually send them for genetic testing but also, if you have LV non-compaction, these patients are at risk for thrombus and also at risk for, for ventricular arrhythmias. You could look at an EKG. That's why it's so important to get an EKG, because if you have some abnormalities, you may look for Brugada syndrome or long QT syndrome and look for extra cardiac features, right? Things like skeletal myopathy, neuropathy, the kind of the pseudo hypertrophy of the calf muscles. These can often be signs that they have these dysmorphic features uh, may be associated with certain skeletal muscle diseases such as Duchenne's uh, muscular dystrophy or Becker's muscular dystrophy, people with limb girdle dystrophy, as well as these syndromes, including renal failure, neuropathy, neurofibromatosis, would all kind of lead you to this. The others that I would say is, what doesn't make sense? You know, so if you have someone who all of a sudden needs a pacemaker at an early age, or if they have early onset atrial fibrillation, right? AFib tends to be a disease of the elderly. But if all of a sudden you have lone atrial fibrillation without a clear underlying etiology, like your thyroidism, for instance, or early conduction disease, you want to think about inherited cardiomyopathy. And then also, when you take the family history, as I mentioned before, don't ask for, has anyone died suddenly? Because a lot of times the answer will be no. But ask, you know, has there been a drowning? For instance, they're a great swimmer, and then all of a sudden they drowned in four feet of water. It makes you wonder about sudden death. If you have other things like a motor vehicle accident and someone who is driving 10 miles an hour in a 10-mile-an-hour zone, once again, they may not have done an autopsy because they thought it was just a fatal car crash, but in reality, it could be an arrhythmia. If somebody who faints all the time and then if they've had a heart attack in a first-degree relative, then you should also consider screening. All of these become really important because there are a lot of things that will change what we do. We know that from work that was done at Brigham and Women's Hospital on the Titan mutation, uh, we know that that's probably one of the more common pathogenic variants in dilated cardiomyopathy. And we're also seeing that in peripartum and alcohol cardiomyopathy. The fact is that we have a lot of people who abuse alcohol but they don't develop heart failure. And it could be that alcohol cardiomyopathy may be that the alcohol is the environment that unmasks an underlying genetic cardiomyopathy. Looking at laminase AC mutation could be really important if you look into conduction blocks, atrial arrhythmias, ventricular arrhythmias, looking at things such as desmosomal protein variants, and even looking at things such as genetic confirmation of Fabry cardiomyopathy because they may need enzyme replacement. So all of these are things where you can get a benefit. The reason it's so important is not only to identify the pathogenic variants that can lead to sudden death. And if you wait until they've had a syncopal event or wait until their ejection fraction meets certain criteria, you may miss the window. You can have someone who's relatively asymptomatic who could die from a ventricular arrhythmia. So it may push you to putting in an implantable cardioverter and ICD. But the other reason is, imagine if, if I know that a genetic variant is not there and I feel pretty certain 
that I'm able to measure it. Imagine the relief when you can measure a first-degree relative, right? A brother, a sister, a child, and you can say you do not carry the gene. So despite your really bad family history, you're, you're safer. Because if you don't do the genetic testing, then you're going to need to do routine screening with an EKG and an echocardiogram or some imaging with uh, plus or minus N-terminal pro-BNP to kind of follow them. And during teenage years, this becomes really disconcerting, right? So if I think someone may have the disease, I want to make sure that they're not at risk for sudden death in the setting of aggressive, heavy physical exertion in competitive athletics. So all of this can be really important, but only in the right context. Well, Dr. Lewis, Devash, this has been a great discussion on the clinical application of genetic testing and counseling cardiomyopathies. Thank you again for your time and all the knowledge you have shared with us today. Thank you. 